there's a report of a Confederate camp out in this location, right? So he takes his army out there. They get to the location. He's kind of terrified because he's never really been at this level of command before. He's sort of afraid of what's going to happen. He gets there, and there's nobody there. The Confederates have left. And he said, you know what? I realized that they were probably every bit as afraid of me as I was of them. Book Society podcast. Welcome. Hello, everybody. This is our first Miami Book Fair episode of 2022. So that's very exciting. And we are here with Robert K. Sutton. He got his start at Fort Vancouver Natural Historical Site as a park ranger. He then went on to become a historian at the National Park Service in the Southwest Regional Office, which I might have some questions about as a Southwesterner. He's held teaching positions at Arizona State University and George Mason University. He was the chief historian of the National Park Service for nine years, retiring in 2016. That's a big job. And he won a Meritorious Service Award from the Department of the Interior. Now, that sounds like a pretty important award, and it sounds like it's from a pretty important department. And so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he has written, I didn't even count them. He has written so many books, Stark Mad Abolitionists, Lawrence, Kansas, and the Battle Over Slavery in the Civil War Era, The Reconstructionist Era, for those who don't know, is after the Civil War, American Indians in the Civil War, The Civil War, Rally on the High Ground, the National Park Service Symposium on, guess what, the Civil War, Discover National Parks, comma, the Civil War. And then he decided to take a break from writing about brothers fighting with brothers and wrote a book called Americans Interpret the Parthenon, the Progression of Greek Revival Architecture from the East Coast to Oregon, 1800 to 1960. And we will be talking in the next episode about his incredible and kind of terrifying, baffling book, Nazis on the Potomac. So for those of you who don't know, the Potomac is the river that runs by Washington, D.C., and Nazis, you know, they're Nazis. And this is not a book about <laughs> modern politics. These are actual 1940s German Nazis that were on the Potomac. The book that Robert K. Sutton chose for us today, and I didn't know why when I read the book, but then researching your bio, it makes perfect sense that you would choose this book. The book he chose was Personal Memoirs by Ulysses S. Grant, which was written in 1885. This book was published by none other than Mark Twain, who basically paid Grant to write it because Grant had run out of money. And he wrote this book in the last years of his life. And it's a memoir of his life and mostly his service in the Civil War. I'd say a third of it is up to West Point, And then the rest of it is Civil War. It's fascinating. It's crazy. It's amazing to read a firsthand account of the Civil War from a guy who ran it for most of the important phases and also from someone who later became president. So I'll start with the question we always start with, which is why did you pick this book? First of all, it's one of the few books I've read three or four times. <laughs> I've listened to it on tape. I recommend it to people who are interested in knowing more about the Civil War. It just, to me, is one of the really, really outstanding books, one of the outstanding memoirs as well from any period. I have recommended it to a number of people. They all seem to like it. And I think the story behind it is about as fascinating as the book. You mentioned that Mark Twain published it. That's kind of a side story, but it's a fascinating story because Grant had avoided writing memoirs. Everybody in the world from the Civil War era wrote memoirs. He had avoided it. There was a company that did a lot of these memoirs. They weren't very generous with their writers. And he was all ready to go with this company. I, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. But Mark Twain said, why don't you let me publish it? And I will make sure that, first of all, it gets the attention it deserves, but also it will make your family money. 
because as you said, he was broke. So Mark Twain published it. He literally finished it, I think, about a week or two before he died. And the family, I think, made about 400000 from the book, which is like the only thing he ever made money from. And it was when he was dead. <laughs> yeah, I read that it was about $13 million contemporary dollars. Yeah, a lot. About what he made, <laughs> a <which> lot. Is, <laughs> that's like what Robert Downey Jr. gets for a Marvel movie. Yeah, I read that he wrote this book after, this is obviously not in the book, because I don't know if he would put this in the book, but he lost a lot of his fortune in a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, he did. You know, it's funny, he was a really, really good general. Turns out he was a really good writer. I think for a long time, he was considered to be really not a very good president. I think as time has gone on, he's not a great president. He had a lot of scandals in his administration, not him personally, but a lot of the people who were in his administration didn't do things right. <laughs> I guess that's the easy way to say it. Then after the Civil War, everything he invested in went bust. And before the Civil War, just about everything he invested in went bust. So I think he really was one of the top military people we've ever had. And he was a terrific writer. Do you think that one of the reasons that his presidency went off the rails was because of his sense of loyalty? He basically, when he introduces a character, pretty much tells you what he thinks of him. And then and I say him because they're basically all men and they're all generals or brigadier generals or whatever. I mean, like Sherman, he just like fell in love with Sherman when he met him and gave him all the important assignments throughout the war. And he was his guy. And then there were some people where he just kind of didn't like them and he always tried to avoid them unless they managed to prove himself. Do you think that that affected his administration, that he sort of had some blind loyalty to people he knew? That could be. But I think the other thing is that he picked officers and you said uh, he and Sherman were very, very close always. Sherman had a great quote. He said, when Sam went by Sam, that's his nickname. When he was drunk, I supported him. When I was crazy, he supported me. That's a very, very liberal summary of that quote. But essentially, they both supported each other. They really were a pretty outstanding team. There's so many things that were fascinating to me about this book. I mean, you're an expert on the period, and I have a grade school understanding of the Civil War, essentially. The thing that I did not think about, but is so obvious when you think about it for a second, and it's so clear in this book, is that all these guys knew each other, like all the generals on both sides. It was a couple of West Point classes, and they all just knew who each other were. And many of them had fought together side by side in the Spanish-American War. There's all these passages where Grant talks about how he's going to go up against a certain general, but he knows what he's going to do because he was in my class at West Point. It was just so fascinating to see that. What role did that play in the war? Oh, I think he was able just to set it aside and say, look, we were buddies. And maybe after the war, we'll be buddies again. But right now, we're not. But he had some very strong opinions of folks. The Confederates at the beginning of the war considered their very, very, very best general to be Albert Sidney Johnston, who had been in the West. He made his way east, joined the Confederate Army. And he was killed in the Battle of Shiloh. Most of the Confederates considered him to be their very, 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 very best general. Grant's opinion of him was he wasn't that impressed with him. He was killed, obviously, and that <laughs> didn't help, but he just wasn't that impressed with him. He wasn't impressed with how he fought that battle and other battles. And he was very opinionated about those sorts of things. Can you speak a little bit about the political climate leading up to the war? what that might have been like, because Grant says that he wasn't even really a pro-Lincoln guy, but he had sympathy with the Northern cause. What was that like? I mean, how were people talking about it at the time? Well, okay, 
I think right now we think things are polarized. I think everybody would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> this is minor leagues compared to that period. Absolutely minor leagues. The polarization was so great. There was one instance, uh, I talk about it in the book I wrote on Kansas. There was a senator, Senator Sumner from Massachusetts, who was critical of another senator from South Carolina. This senator's nephew came and almost beat him to death in the Senate chamber. I mean, that's how strong emotions were. And not only was he not prosecuted for beating Sumner, but everybody in the South sent him a cane similar to the one that he'd broken over Sumner's head. So the polarization between North and South, slavery, non-slavery, was very, very strong. Most people, even in the North, were not so much anti-slavery as they were anti-expansion of slavery. That's a really kind of key point. That's what Lincoln believed, and that's what many in the North believed. Obviously, if there's going to be a civil war, and they thought that Lincoln, because he said that he didn't think slavery should expand into any of the territories, they felt that he was going to end slavery. Well, if he's going to end slavery, it's going to destroy the South. Now, to get a sense of how valuable slavery was in 1860, first of all, the United States had more slaves than any country in the history of the world, 4 million slaves. We know that from the census because they were counted as part of the census. That's the population of Los Angeles. Yeah. Jesus. And the value of slaves was about $5 billion. And if you want to try to quantify that, it's a lot of money. It's more than all the banks, all the railroads, all the factories in the entire country combined, and more than all the land in the South combined. That's $5 billion, $1860. Yes. A slave that was like a young man who was in very good health, strong, could be sold for up to about 2500 in those dollars. To give you a sense of what that was, a really pretty nice house in Chicago would be $500. And I guess I can see that if you're a northerner and even a somewhat radical northerner saying, well, let's not expand slavery into the territories because it's morally abhorrent, but we can't do away with it completely because it would literally destroy the economy of half of our country. Right. In some ways, it would destroy the economy of the entire country because, you know, sugar was important to the whole economy. Cotton was important to the whole economy. It just was a big deal. I mean, we hear now today from apologist sources that the Civil War was about states' rights or it was about all these other things, but it was about slavery. Like, would anyone at the time have mistaken what the war was about? No, in fact, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Hamilton Stevens, gave a speech. It was called the Cornerstone Speech. And in this, he said, the cornerstone of the Confederacy is slavery, period. And many of the documents of secession specifically said that slavery was the reason they were seceding. So no question. But of course, <laughs> the South did not want Anybody really, especially Europeans, England and France, to think that they were fighting the war for slavery because both England and France had abolished slavery. England had abolished slavery many years earlier, and there was a very strong anti-slavery sentiment in especially Great Britain. So they didn't want them to think that the reason that they were fighting this war was for slavery. So they made the issue, you know, economics, states' rights, blah, 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 blah. And that's 
part of why this whole thing about states' rights became part of the narrative. Anyone who is a Civil War apologist and wants to talk about how the Civil War was about anything other than slavery, Robert K. Sutton, who's written 150 books on the Civil War, is here to tell you different. <laughs> it was about slavery. There are a couple of things in the book that I think are particularly wonderful, actually. He had been in the Army. He had resigned his commission, partly because he was stationed in remote areas. He wasn't able to take his family with him. So he volunteered. He became a colonel with the Illinois military. He had a regiment. They went out to this one area. They all sort of gathered in one area. He realized when he was at West Point that one of the areas that he was not really good at was tactics. So there's a book by actually a Confederate, <laughs> Hardy, who wrote a book on tactics. He said, I got this book on tactics and I decided I was going to read it and I was going to practice it. I was going to read it every night and take my troops out and practice it. So he said the next day he went out and he realized that if they were going to do everything there was in this book by Hardy, they're going to have to tear down every single building in this town. He said, you know what? I realized I'll make do with what I have and where I am. <laughs> in other words, he was incredibly practical. How do you prepare an army to fight, essentially? That was part of it. Like you line them up like this. They had lines of fire. There'd be like a thousand soldiers lined up right next to each other. And that was one of the things you did for training. And so to do it like the book said you should do it, there wasn't enough room in this town to do that. But my favorite line in the book is, he's now a commander. He's a colonel. His first assignment is to take his regiment out. There's a report of a Confederate camp out in this location, right? So he takes his army out there. They get to the location. He's kind of terrified because he's never really been at this level of command before. He's sort of afraid of what's going to happen. He gets there, and there's nobody there. The Confederates have left. And he said, you know what? I realized that they were probably every bit as afraid of me as I was of them. Isn't that great? <laughs> Thank coming from Grant. <laughs> <laughs> that line stood out to me, too. That's so amazing to think that someone like Ulysses S. Grant, who is the marble bust at this point in our history to think that he had a moment where he was just terrified of his own command. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you think that Grant's portrayal of himself in this book is consistent with your research? And I guess more to the point consistent with what the South thought of him or still thinks of him? A lot of people who are, we call them neocons and it's not neoconservative, neoconfederates, of course, don't like him. And they really don't like Sherman because of the March to the Sea, but they really don't like him. They don't think he was that great. They think Robert E. Lee was the greatest general ever. But I think if anyone really cares, <laughs> I think most people that know anything about military would say that he was a very good general. He made mistakes like anybody else. But when he became the overall commander and took over the Army of the Potomac, things were very, very different than they had been. And uh, I think. If you look at it dispassionately, people would have to say that he was really an outstanding general, an outstanding commander. Man, it didn't even occur to me that this might exist, but you're like a Union historian. Do you have a counterpart in the South who views the war completely differently? I try to look at it as neutrally as I possibly can. Although I think the South was very wrong in seceding from the Union. I think the Civil War was very wrong. I think it was very wrong for it to go on as long as it did. I think the number of people that were killed was just mind-boggling, really. There's a statistic. They actually had very good records of the number of deaths, and the official number was 620,000 deaths. 
to compare that to other wars, you have to go all the way through the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korea, and most of Vietnam to come up with that number. Jesus. But recently, demographers have looked at the numbers from the Civil War, looked at census records. I don't know exactly how they do this, but they believe that the number was probably more like 750,000, could have been as high as 800,000 or more deaths. And most historians actually now use that number, 750,000. So I think it's horrible that that happened. But I can look at it and say, you know, so-and-so was a very good general. The South fought very valiantly in most of the battles. I think Robert E. Lee was generally a very good general. So I can look at it like that. I try not to take sides because in the Park Service, you have to try to explain it factually (laughs) and without as much emotion as you possibly can set aside. You know, it's hard to say that a winning general was not as good as a losing general. But I've always thought, like, for example, I would consider myself a Hannibal fan. I think Hannibal was probably the better general in the Second Punic War. He just caught some bad breaks. Hannibal very well could have been the best general in the history of the world, period. But he didn't win. He lost. Ultimately, ultimately. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Coming from a Dodger fan who used to be a Yankees fan, I mean, you could always say that the 95 Dodgers were the better team, but they didn't win. Right. So were they the better team? The best team wins, right? Isn't that how it works? Yeah, it's usually the way it is. <laughs> There's this great apocryphal story about a dinner with Scipio and Hannibal somewhere in the Middle East where they have essentially this conversation and Hannibal says, well, you know, I was the greatest general to ever live. And Scipio says, I literally destroyed your city myself. <laughs> which he did. So Yeah, which he did. How good a general did you feel when I was destroying the walls of your homeland? I think the last question on this book is Lincoln is this enigmatic figure in this book where he doesn't really make an entrance to the last third of the book in the real narrative. Grant, I would say, treats him with begrudging respect. Did they like each other? I really believe that they had tremendous respect for each other. Now, one problem (laughs) that they had was Julia Grant, and most people, this is the case, could not stand Mary Todd Lincoln. And they were supposed to go to Cord's Theater with them, and she just didn't want to go. So he made the excuse that he wanted to go see his children, got on a train to go see his children in New Jersey, and they didn't go to the play at Ford's Theater. But I think part of it was he was so devoted to his wife. I mean, there's one of the great romances, I think, from that period. And when she didn't like Mrs. Lincoln, well, they just weren't going to be socializing. It just wasn't going to happen. That's my take on it. But I think personally, I think he had tremendous respect for Lincoln. I think Lincoln had tremendous respect for him. If I had to cite a particular passage in the book that would say that, I don't think I could. But it's just my reading of the situation. I guess I felt that, too, that he respected Lincoln, but that they weren't buddies. No, they weren't. They weren't. And just for, we have a lot of international listeners, Ford's Theater is where Lincoln got shot. So that's what Mr. Sutton was referring yes, to. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's taught abroad. I mean, I think they probably know that Abraham Lincoln got shot, but yeah, he got shot at Ford's Theater. You know, Ford's Theater is a national park. Oh, I didn't know that. So that was under your purview. It's a national park and it still has plays on the same stage. 
How about wow. that? <laughs> the Players Club in New York City was started by Booth's brother, Edwin Booth. Right. Probably considered the best actor of his day, especially Shakespearean actor of his day. It's amazing to think that the person who assassinated Lincoln, it would be like if Eric Stewart, Patrick Stewart's brother, assassinated the president. Super famous, super well-respected actor. Amazing. So we're going to come back next week with Robert K. Sutton, and we're going to stop talking about Confederates, and we're going to start talking about Nazis. So join us for that. We'll see you in a week. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Santiago Mones. I guess I produce it too. Santiago edits it, does all the important stuff, and I just talk to the guests and read the books. So I hope you like it. If you do like it, it would be great if you could rate and review it because that really helps the show. It helps other people find the show. And the more people listen to the show, the more awesome guests we're going to be able to get. So rate and review the podcast. Thanks very much. Hey, do you like hearing about books? I know you do because you're listening to the Book Society podcast. This episode and so many of the other episodes leading up to and after the Miami Book Fair were brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. These are the authors that are coming together in Miami in 2022 every year from November 13th to November 20th. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair in 2022. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I think I just want to point out that while maybe there was a strong anti-chattel slavery sentiment in Great Britain at the time, they got around that by just enslaving entire countries at a time rather than enslaving individual people. <laughs> so it's not like they had their hands clean and they were right. you know, morally superior. Exactly. Exactly.